0: Want to turn in your Bibles to the book of Revelation this morning. Revelation chapter 7 is where we find ourselves this morning. I'll read the passage. You follow along with me. We have 17 verses. So let's read those together. After this, I saw four angels standing in the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea, or in any tree. And I saw another angel sending from the rising of the sun, having a seal of the living God, and he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels, whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees until we have sealed the bond servants of the Lord our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe, Of the sons of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From Reuben, 12,000. Gad, 12,000. Asher, 12,000. Naphtali, 12,000. Manasseh, 12,000. Simeon, 12,000. Levi, 12,000. Issachar, 12,000. Zebulun, 12,000. Joseph, 12,000. And the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. After these things, I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation, all tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands. They cried out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing, and glory, and wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, might be to our God forever and ever. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, These who are clothed in white robes, who are they, and where have they come from? And I said to him, My Lord, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and have washed their robes, made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God. They serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. They will hunger no longer, thirst any more, nor will the sun beat down on them any heat. For the Lamb, in the center of the throne, will be their shepherd, and will guide them to springs of water of life. God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Father, we thank you for the word of God. We pray that the spirit of God would help us understand this passage. We pray that uh, our hearts might be attuned to what it has to say to us this morning. We give you praise and blessing may you honor your word this morning in our hearts. In Jesus' name. Many years ago, when we were having an El Nino here in Southern California, I took my family down to the beach, San Clemente State Beach, and the water was so warm, it was up in the upper 70s, that my son Paul, just enjoying the water. There was no chill in the water at all. Unfortunately, that particular day, there were rather large waves. It was eight foot plus. And I kept telling Paul, Paul, you stay right in front of the blanket where I can see you. He was about 10 years old. And uh, I turned away for a few moments to talk to my wife and looked up and Paul was about 50 yards down uh, to the north of me and he had been, the undertow was so strong. And he was about up to here in, his, in the water and I saw on the, on the outskirts three or four large 8-foot to 10-foot waves. And I just threw off my glasses and ran as fast as I could. And just before the waves hit him, I was able to grab his arm. And both of us got pounded by those three or four foot waves. And I thought for sure if I hadn't grabbed him, he might have been um, sucked under and not been able to handle it. And I perhaps might have lost my son that day. Because the waves were so large and so strong that he was not able to stand and enabled to hang in there with those powerful waves. In our passage this morning, I want to talk about standing. Now, at the end of chapter 6, the last verse in chapter 6, asks this question. With everything going on within the context of what we've seen in chapter 6 and what we'll see in chapter 8, who is able to stand? How are you going to make it? And I believe that chapter 7, which is an interlude, it just pauses for a moment, just pauses for a moment, because beginning in chapter 8, the seventh seal is broken. Chapter 6, the sixth seal is broken. So there's just an interlude between the sixth seal and the seventh seal. There's an interlude, and it answers the question of who is able to stand during those terrible days with all the natural cataclysms happening with, a, with a antichrist ruling and reigning who is able to make it through who is able to stand and I want to talk about that because there's an application for us too how are you standing today I, here's the application I'll just spoil my sermon right now as <laughs> so we read about these these events there are some who stand and they're not I mean, their experience is a hundred times more severe than anything that any of us are suffering now. And the question I would ask you, the question I would ask myself, are you able to stand? Ephesians chapter 6 tells us, what, it tells us, uh, stand firm against the wiles of the devil. So, here's the question. Who's able to stand? Let's take a look at our passage, chapter 7. Three thoughts we find in this passage. First, the question comes to the mind, well, before we even talk about the two groups mentioned in chapter 7, the first question that comes to my mind is, well, how are they able to stand? Now, okay, who was able to stand? But the question, much more important, is how? How are they able to stand? And of course, we think, well, well, it's, it's simple. You know, it's by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit. It's the power. It's the work of the Holy Spirit that enables them to stand during these very, very difficult days, and that's true. And if that's true, and it is, we need to take a look at Second Thessalonians chapter two, which kind of sets the how that works during these difficult days. So turn with me for just a moment before we look at our text, Second Thessalonians which is just before the two books of Timothy, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we'll set the context beginning in verses 1 and 2. 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 and 2. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together him, that you not quickly be shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit Or a message or a letter as from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. How are they able to stand? Okay, that's just the context. Verses 1 and 2 says, what was happening? The people in Thessalonica had been told that they were experiencing the day of the Lord. It was already happening. And Paul is writing to them, no, 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 no. That's not happening yet. And in verse 5, he says, don't you remember? Don't you remember? I told you. When I was with you, I told you what the characteristics of that day would be like. So we're right there within the context of it. And he says, there are some things, specifically three things that have to be happening before you know that you're in the day of the Lord, before you know that you're in the great tribulation, before you know you're in the seven years that the Bible talks about, the day of Jacob's trouble. There's three things that that characterize that seven-year period. And if they're not happening, you're not in it. And Paul's argument is, you are not experiencing the day of the Lord. So he explained that. Now, we have to understand as Paul does this, he's not saying that the church is going to see those days. He's just saying, if these things aren't happening, you're not in the day of the Lord. Let's take a look. Verse 3. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come, that is, the day of the Lord, Unless, here's the first one, the apostasy comes first. The apostasy, a great falling away. What is the apostasy? That's a good question. The apostasy, I believe, and then there's many theories on what the apostasy is, this great falling away from the faith, is what happens. After the rapture of the church, those who are Christians, those who are born again, are all taken up into heaven. Left within the denominations that appear today are people who were Christians in name only. They're left. Some of them get saved, but many of them are pulled away and they fall away from the denominations and they are sucked in, so to speak, pulled into the false one-world religion established by the Antichrist. And they flee from their Christian denominations and they are sucked into this one world religion set up by the Antichrist, and, uh, which is man-centered and uh, concerned about the things of this world. I see that as the apostasy. So that's the first thing, the great apostasy. Hasn't happened yet. You're not in the day of the Lord, Paul says. Then he says, and, here's the second, the man of lawlessness is to be revealed the son of destruction the Antichrist who opposes verse four and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship. So that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as God. So they're not in the, the day of the Lord. They're not in the great tribulation because the Antichrist has not gone in, breaks the covenant that he makes with the Jewish people and establishes himself as a God that hasn't happened yet. So you're not in the day of the Lord, Paul. So, First of all, the apostasy. Second of all, the revealing of the Antichrist in a full revelation of who he is. Okay, that's number two. Number three is found in verses six, seven, and eight. And you know what restrains him now so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. Paul says, right now, there's something restraining the revealing of the Antichrist. Okay. Who is this person or that this thing? He says, he, he's restraining, restraining the work of the Antichrist. Well, I think it's the Holy Spirit. But it's not just the Holy Spirit. I think it's the Holy Spirit in the church, in the visible church right now, is withstanding the evil that's that's approaching us. And when the church is what? Taken out of the way. The church is taken out of the way. It allows the Antichrist to fully reveal himself and begin his terrible work. However, the Holy Spirit is not taken off the earth. It's the Holy Spirit in the church. It's the visible church. The salt and the light that the church represents is taken out of the way. Then the Antichrist can have his full work. The Holy Spirit is active throughout the tribulation because we're going to see that many people come to know the Lord through these difficult seven years. And so what we have here is these people, Uh, who who stand, are empowered by the Holy Spirit, but they're not the church. They're not the church. Those people have been taken up and they are in heaven with Jesus during this seven years tribulation. What's left is what we see in our chapter. Okay, so that kind of sets the stage of what we're looking at in chapter seven. Let's take a look. So how are they able to stand? By the power of the Holy Spirit, which still is active and working, within uh, the world during this time. Okay, now let's take a look at the two groups. The first group is found in verses one through eight, and as, that's the 144,000. 144,000, and they are sons of Israel. Now, if you'll notice first in verses one through three, it says there was an angel. It says, hold on, hold on, don't begin The troubles that we're going to see in chapter 8, the first four seals broken, very difficult times, Uh, supernatural events uh, affecting uh, all of the universe and the world. He says, hold on, don't do anything until these 144,000 people are sealed. Now, a couple of thoughts about who these people are and what they're doing. First of all, they were sealed. What does that mean? Two things. One, they were saved. After the church is taken up, after the church is taken up, now, if they were saved before the church was taken up, they would have gone with the church. Amen? Because everybody goes, whoever knows the Lord, we all go up in the rapture. So these folks were not Christians. They're Jewish people who were not Christians. And they get saved at the beginning or very early within the tribulation, and they are sealed, saved, converted, whatever you want to say. So first of all, they're saved. Second of all, they are protected. They are protected from the events that will take place on the earth and from the forces of the Antichrist. Why do I say they're protected? It's a very good question. Look with me in chapter 14, verse 1. Chapter 14, verse 1 says, and here's another parenthetical passage. This is a little pause in the action. And it says, Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb, who is that? Jesus, standing on Mount Zion. So Jesus is standing where? In Jerusalem. He's returned. And it goes on, And with him were the 144,000, having his name and the name of his father written on the forehead. So what do we see? At the end of the tribulation, Jesus is standing. He has defeated the Antichrist. He's standing on Mount Zion. He's standing in Jerusalem. And who's with him? The 144,000. So not only are they saved, but they are protected. And they go through the tribulation. And they go alive into the millennium as saved natural beings. So not only are they sealed, they're saved, but they're protected throughout these seven terrible years. And they are not only protected from the natural cataclysms that take place, but also from the work of the anti-Christ. Okay. Now it says they have the seal of Jesus name and the Father's name on their forehead. Now that seems strange until you read chapter 13 verse 16. And it says, and he, that is the, uh, the false prophet, causes all the small and the great and the rich and the poor and the free men and their slaves to be given a mark on their right hand or their forehead and they are given the mark of the Antichrist. So that's opposed to the mark of the Antichrist. These have the guys, these foes have a seal and it's the name of God on both their forehead and the name of the father. On their forehead. They are bond servants. When he says bond servants. Well what are they doing during the seven years? They're serving the Lord. They're witnesses of Christ. They're powerful servants of the Lord. Doing the Lord's work. Many people come to know. Um, come to know the Lord during this time. And I believe. That they fully fulfill. The promises the promise that was made to Abraham that through his seed, the Gentile nations will be blessed. These are Jewish evangelists, Jewish evangelists, Jewish servants of God who lead many people to Christ and they become a blessing, a blessing to all the people of the world. Now we'll look at the next group in, beginning in verse nine and these folks they come from a great multitude, from every nation, tribe, peoples, and tongues, it says in verse 9. I believe many of those people mentioned in verse 9 come to know the Lord through the 144,000 Jewish evangelists. These folks are on fire for the Lord, and they're protected, and they're able to share the Lord with many, many people. Now, as we look at the, um, the list, you're saying, well, wait a wait, minute, wait. there's a couple missing. Dan and Ephraim are not mentioned. Those are two tribes of Israel. What about them, Pastor Neil? Well, Ephraim was the son of Joseph, so I believe that Ephraim is included with Joseph there in verse eight. Now, Dan is another story. If you go back to Genesis chapter 49, verse 17, Genesis 49, 17, the prophecy made about Daniel was that he perhaps, you can read it yourself, he perhaps fully gave himself over to the work of the Antichrist. The whole tribe gave their work themselves. Just That's a thought, why Dan isn't there. Okay. Now, the last thing I want to say about this group is there are some Christians, God bless them, who say that when Israel rejected the Messiah at the first coming, at his first coming, that God just was kind of through with the Jewish people. And all the promises and everything that was said to Abraham and the Jewish people um, was kind of transferred spiritually to the church. And all the things that were supposed to happen to the Jewish Jewish nation, they're really given spiritually and they become part of the church's legacy. I don't think it's true. Here, what are we doing here? We've got 144,000, and these are Jewish believers. These are people who are Jewish. Now, if you happen to read, and you might want to, the last few chapters of Ezekiel, and I've said this before, you'll find out that the millennium, the thousand years of reign of Christ, when Christ is reigning from Jerusalem, according to the Bible, for a thousand years, that mess that goes on during that time is very Jewish. <laughs> Why is it Jewish, because that fulfills a promise that God made that one day a descendant of David would rule and reign on this earth. 144,000. They become a good part of those who go into the millennium with real bodies, with real physical bodies, along with others who make it through the tribulation, and they repopulate the earth for that 1,000 years with natural people who are born and have families and and the earth is repopulated after the terrible seven years of tribulation. But it's a very Jewish time, as we would say Jewish. But that, I believe, is God's fulfilling his promise. Not only does he use these 144,000 people to win many to be a blessing to the Gentile nations, but then he does something incredible. He keeps his promises that a descendant of David will rule and reign on this earth, Jesus Christ. Okay, who is able to stand? 144,000 sons of Israel. Let's look at the second group. People I call the tribulation saints as found in verses 9 through 17. Notice what it says. He looks and a great multitude. Every nation, tribe, people, tongues. And unfortunately, the scene moves not from earth to heaven. And they're standing before the throne. And in verse 13, John asks, who are those? Where do they come from? And verse 14 says, this particular group, and it's a multitude that no one could count, are those who came out of the great tribulation, out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes, made them white with the blood of the lamb. Who are these people? Once again, this is a group, excuse me, this is a group of people who were not saved prior to the tribulation. Maybe there were some people that you witnessed to Maybe there were some people who were in the visible church but had not given their lives to Christ. When the rapture happens, many of them, and through the ministry of the 144,000, many of those people come to Christ. Matter of fact, a multitude that no one could count, they come to know Christ. However, unfortunately, they pay with their lives for their faith. Look at chapter 6 verses, um, let's see, where are we? Verses nine through 11. This is the same group. We had seen them before. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God, because of the testimony which they had maintained, and they cried out with a loud voice saying, How, Lord, Lord, Lord. Holy and true, will you refrain from judging the avenging of the blood of those who dwell on the earth? What you see here, what was mentioned in verse 9, and 10, and 11 in chapter 6, is the same group that we see here. They uh, are standing before the throne of God, and they have palm branches in their hands, and they're clothed with white robes. Now, some have said, well, Pastor Neil, are they given their new bodies? What's the state? Okay, they, they didn't go up in the rapture, so they, didn't, they weren't part of the resurrection. But that they became Christians after the rapture, and so they died for their faith, and they're in heaven. But what form are they? Well, it says that they are holding branches, olive branches in their hands, and they have white robes. If you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it seems to indicate that there's some sort of maybe transitional form prior to them getting their new bodies. But they're different. They're different from the church. The church already has its new bodies. These folks have not received their new bodies. Why do I say that? Chapter 20, verse 4. Chapter 20, verse 4. I'm giving you a real kind of a, a, a looking through the book of Revelation. Chapter 4, chapter 20, verse 4, is immediately after Christ has returned. He's defeated the Antichrist, and look what it says. Then I saw thrones and them, sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those... Now, listen carefully. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Christ, of Jesus. Okay. So they, some have been beheaded because of the word of God. Some had been killed because of the word of God. And those who had not worshiped the beast or his image had not received the mark on their forehead on the right hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Those people who are saved after the rapture, who do not go in the first resurrection, they pay with their lives for their faith, and they are given new bodies after Christ returns to the earth. That's the group. That's the group that we see here in, in verses 9 through 17, what we call the tribulation saints. Now, some might say, well, wait, 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 wait a minute, you said they were going to stand. Uh, they got killed. They weren't able to stand. Uh, it depends on how you what you say. Stand means. Now, remember I mentioned Ephesians chapter 6? I said, we are, we are to stand against the evil schemes of the devil. Did these people stand against the evil schemes? Oh, they stood. They stood. They stood firm. They didn't take the mark. They stood during very difficult times. And they paid for it with their lives. But they did stand. And so... uh We have these two groups, 144,000 and uh, the tribulation saints. Okay, so how are they able to stand? By the power of the Holy Spirit. Who are they? 144,000 Jewish evangelists, we'll call them. And finally, uh, many people who come to know the Lord after the rapture, after the resurrection, and they, uh, many of them, unfortunately pay with their lives for their faith. Okay. What should our response be? That's the third point I want to talk about this morning. First of all, we need to believe. Here's the first application. We need to believe that God's plan is best. God's plan is best. As you look at this, you think, wait, 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 wait a minute. Wait a minute, Neil. Why do the Jews get through you know, unscathed? I mean, I mean, they make it, they're sealed, they're protected, they get, And why are the Gentiles, they both get saved after the rapture? What's the deal? Why do the, why do the non-Jewish people get, get killed, many of them, a multitude that no one could remember? Why do they get killed? And sometimes it seems so unfair what God is doing. You can't kind of understand, but you've got to understand that God's plan is best. Why is this happening? Well, I think it has something to do with the nature and the character of the millennium, something to do with the nature and the character of what God had promised the Jewish people he was going to do for them. Well, we'll figure it out. But you have to understand that God's plan is always best. Because at first it seems somewhat unfair that the Gentile people get killed for their faith and the Jews are protected. We can't understand many times. But God's plan is always for the best. Now, let's apply it to us. Maybe you find yourself in a place this morning, or today, or this week, or this month, and you're thinking, uh, All things work together for the good. This doesn't seem very good right now. Maybe you're in that kind of position, maybe because of your health or maybe because of a family situation or maybe your job situation or maybe you're just emotionally distraught and you're thinking, this doesn't seem very good for now. However, if we look at these folks here, they went through a difficult time, that is the, the second group, But wait a minute, wait a minute. Things are going really good towards the end of the chapter. So oftentimes, God's plan doesn't seem the best, but it is the best. We have to believe that God's plan is best, even though right now, it seems mm, not good. Okay. Second response. We need to... Learn to look at the big picture. We need to learn to look at the big picture. Like I said, if we would look at just uh, verses uh, nine through fourteen, all those people got killed. They paid for their faith with their lives. And if you look just at that, those particular verses, it seems like they got to the short end of the stick. Wait, 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 wait wait. Read further. Get the bigger picture. Doesn't look like this is not too bad, amen? They're serving him day and night in a temple. They'll hunger no more, thirst no more. His son, he'll watch over and protect them. Uh, That sounds pretty good. See, you got to get the big picture. And perhaps right now, again, applying it to you, maybe you're suffering. Maybe difficult times are going on and you're wondering what's happening. Get the big picture, because the worst that could happen to you is what? The worst, and I've said this many times, the worst the thing that could happen to us is if we could die and find ourselves to be in heaven. See, that's, see, that's what keeps people acting like Christians when everything is going south, when, when everything is, looks like it's going down the tubes, the, the bottom is dropped out. Christians have a big picture it's not over. It's not over. Because what awaits us on the other side, as a matter of fact, it even says in Romans 8, that the sufferings of this present world are what not to be compared. Not to be compared with the glory that follows. So we have to believe that God's plan is best. Secondly, we need to learn to look at the big picture Read all the verses from 9 through 17. That's the big picture. And finally, we need to trust that God will prove his love. Trust that God will prove his love. The big lie of the devil, my friends, is that God seems to love others more than he loves me. That's the lie of the devil. How do I mean? Well, you look at some other Christians, and man, they're getting blessed, and there's all kind of wonderful things happening in their lives, but you think, well, you know, their faith works for them, but it doesn't seem to work very well for me. I'm not not getting blessed as much as those people are, and oftentimes uh, we're envious of what God is doing in other people's lives, and we're thinking, well, what happened to me? And we begin to think, and this is what the devil would like you to know, that God loves them more than he loves you. You see, because he's not working, he's not blessing you as much as he is blessing them. Not true. Why do I say that? Did you ever think that God, because he knows you, better than you know yourself, that it's just possible that he's dealing with you within the capacity that you can receive it. Now, it does say, as far as trials are concerned, that God will not give you any more than you can handle, amen? That's what he says. But also, that could also work as far as blessing you. Is it possible that God has not given you as much as he's given some others because he knows that you could not handle it. And rather than being a sign of him not loving you, it's a sign of his ultimate love because he'll only give you what you can handle. We need to trust that God will prove his love, that God does love you just as much as those he's blessing in your mind more abundantly. Because here we see the 144,000. Man, they're having a wonderful time. They just march right through those seven years. And the rest of them just. But does he love the 144,000 any more than the tribulation saints? No way. Because he's got a plan for both. God loves you, and he'll prove his love to you. Okay. Who's able to stand? the sons of Israel, and the tribulation of saints. Now, some of you guys, here's a question I have for you. Did you ever play the game called Freeze? Do you ever, ever remember Freeze? Any of you guys played the Freeze? Yeah, some of you guys played Freeze. Now, this is the way we played it on the East Coast. Where it's for teenagers. Only teenagers would think of this demented game. We would have a space, maybe we'd have a chalk mark on the parking lot. I lived in the city in Newark at that time. And we'd draw out a space, oh, maybe as big as this area right here, 25 feet in diameter. And we'd choose somebody to be it, okay? The rest of us would get in the circle. And the person who was it would go this way. He'd count. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, freeze. And then we could move around and position ourselves anywhere in that circle until he said, freeze, and then we had to stop. We couldn't move. Then the person who was it would enter into the circle. And he would try and catch you moving. However, while his back was turned, you could punch him (laughs) from here to here in the back or the front or the chest. And if he didn't catch you, you'd get away with it. However, if he did see you punching, going for him and moving, trying to get to him, he could call out your name. And then he would call out your name and say, Jack. And then Jack had to go, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, freeze. And all the time during he was playing that, the whole crowd of us would punch him. (laughs) Now, As you can see, the object of the game is to see who could stand the most in that circle. And it sometimes got pretty brutal, and oftentimes we'd end up with black and blue marks on our elbow. Now, how many of you have played that game Freeze? (laughs) That's the way we played Freeze in Newark, New Jersey. Yes. Uh, Now, what's the application? Well, here's the application, my friends. How are you doing? Are you standing? Are you standing against the wiles of the devil? Now, these folks here that we read about, the 144,000 and the tribulation saints, their circumstances were much, much more severe Much more difficult than anything any of us have ever experienced. Amen? And they stood. And they stood by the power of the Holy Spirit. They didn't do it in themselves, it was the Holy Spirit. As they yielded themselves, some were protected and they got through 144,000. Others paid with their life. The question is not what happened to them, the question is that they did stand. Let me ask you a question. Let me, let me ask myself a question. Am I standing? Am I able to stand against the wiles of the devil? There's only one way to do it, and that's by asking the power of the Holy Spirit to inhabit and enable you to be a witness for Christ, to stand against the wiles of the devil. Pray with me, please. Father, we, we look at these people Sometimes we don't understand what you do in our lives, but yet this scripture so shows us, so illustrates for us how important it is to be empowered by the Holy Spirit, to love Christ with all our heart, mind, and soul, because we have an enemy who wants to destroy us, an enemy who wants to defeat us, and I pray. I pray each one of us might stand against the the evil, the schemes of the devil who would destroy us, our lives, our witness, our testimony, our marriages, and would love to destroy the church. And we thank you that we have you as we yield our lives to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Yesterday, we were out on the corner. We had a pro-life demonstration. We had some rather uh, graphic pictures of what abortion is like. And a lady came up to me and she said, Pastor Neil, I'm a Christian and I believe that abortion is wrong. And I'm, uh, but the way you're doing it, the way you're doing it, I don't agree with. And I says, well, how are you doing it? <laughs> she wasn't doing anything. Now, not, this, is this the application? How are you doing with your Christian faith? Are you doing anything? anything. Because if you really believe what I was talking about this morning, you will act accordingly. Just a convicting message from Pastor (laughs) Neal. God bless you.